We bring you what's happening in the world right now, coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. The audio evidence in former President Trump's classified documents case is now public. NTD's legal correspondent provides analysis. The Supreme Court rules that state courts can have a say in federal elections. It's a blow to lawmakers who wanted more control over how elections were held. In a major turnaround, Russia announced it's dropping charges against Evgeny Prigozhin, and Russian President Vladimir Putin has high praise for the country's military. The Transportation Department grants $1.7 billion to electric buses across the country. Washington, D.C. is given the largest grant. Banks are now facing the Federal Reserve's annual stress test to test their resiliency under crisis. It comes after four bank failures in the first quarter. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Our top news today is some developments in former President Trump's classified documents case. A federal judge rejected a request from special counsel Jack Smith yesterday. Smith asked for the list of witnesses Trump is ordered not to communicate with to be kept secret. In addition to denying that request, the judge also set a hearing date to decide how classified materials will be handled in the case. And CNN released the audio recording used in Smith's indictment. In it, Trump discusses not declassifying documents. Prosecutors consider it a critical piece of evidence. The two-minute conversation comes from a July 2021 interview with people working on the memoir of Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. See, as president, I could have declassified yeah. it. Now I can't, you know, but this is yeah, classified. Now, now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so yeah. cool. I mean, it's so, I'm, look, we here and I have a, and you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, it's, I believe It's you. incredible. Trump reacted on Truth Social by saying the CNN release was illegally leaked and spun, and that the recording actually clears him of any wrongdoing. He called it continuation of a witch hunt and equated it to election interference. We now go to NTD's legal correspondent, Arlene Richards, for more discussion about the released audio tape. Arlene, is there anything surrounding this audio recording that would serve as an exoneration, like Trump says? Well, it's not clear to me uh, what he means by exoneration, but I did speak to a former federal prosecutor, David Shostokas, and he seems to think that this is part of an internal matter. He thinks that maybe Trump was being painted as dangerous and, and crazily wanting an invasion, and so General Milley created this uh, attack plan and submitted it to him. But Trump has said in the audio tape that he didn't request the plan. So according to Sestokas, he thinks that this was designed to misuse classified documents. He thinks that it was used in a way to not protect national security, but actually to protect the creator of the document. I see. And people working on the Meadows memoir presumably, of course, did not have high-level security clearance. What liability would Trump have if he did share classified information about an attack on Iran to them? Well, according to the Espionage Act, he could face a significant fine or some jail time. But I think it's important to remember that we don't know what was contained in that classified document. And according to some legal scholars, uh, the prosecution in an Espionage Act case hinges on not whether or not the document was classified, but whether or not the information in it uh, poses a national security risk. And even though there is some discussion about an Iran evasion or attack, we don't exactly know what the document said and how significant it is in terms of a national security risk. 
Arlene, is the leak illegal like President Trump says it is? Uh, well, it could be. In this, in this scenario, we don't know yet whether or not this evidence will be admitted at the time of trial. Now, we have a situation here where there's evidence that came from a different state. It's in, it's in New Jersey and the actual case is in Florida. So there's not a direct connection between the two things that occurred. But President Trump has said that he declassified all the documents. And one of the elements that the prosecutor has to prove is that President Trump knew the documents were still classified and that he mishandled them. So this piece of evidence from the New Jersey situation has to come in to bolster his prosecution of this element, that, that Trump knew the documents were still classified, that he illegally obtained them, and that he intended to do something with them that was illegal. Now, the leak itself uh, can be viewed as being illegal because it has not yet been brought in as evidence in the case. So here we are, we're broadcasting this information uh, around the world about this uh, what seems to be an admission that he knew the documents were classified. But a jury is not supposed to be able to hear that until and unless the judge allows this piece of evidence to come into the case. So now a potential jury has heard this or will hear this, and it kind of damages uh, Trump's uh, opportunities to have a fair trial because once this has been heard and it's known, even if the judge says, forget about what you heard, forget about what you heard in the media, this is not coming in. It's already in the minds of people, so they're going to have a, a preconceived notion or opinion about it even before the trial even starts. And it's, of course, very important to have an untainted jury pool. Aurelian, thank you so much for your analysis on this. Thank you, Kevin. Trump aide Walt Nauda failed to make it to a hearing in time. He was also charged in the case of Trump's handling of classified White House documents. Nauda's arraignment was rescheduled after his Florida-bound flight was canceled due to storms. He made his first court appearance with Trump earlier this month, but didn't enter a formal plea due to the lack of a local attorney during the trial. Meanwhile, a judge will decide whether Trump's New York criminal case should be moved to a federal court in Manhattan. There, Trump's team could try to get the case dismissed. Requests to transfer criminal cases from state to federal court are rarely granted. The judge is set to hear arguments this afternoon, but no immediate ruling is expected. The Supreme Court rules that state legislatures do not get the final say in federal elections. Some states were looking to keep the influence of the state courts out of elections. The decision means that state Supreme Courts will have a say in how states carry out federal elections. The case was Moore versus Harper and looked at if the state court could indeed throw out election maps in North Carolina. The state used the court-drawn maps instead of maps by the GOP-majority legislature. Lawmakers complained and brought the issue before the U.S. Supreme Court. They hoped for a favorable interpretation of the independent state legislature theory that puts the power in lawmakers' hands. But the Supreme Court didn't agree. Three justices dissented, saying the case was moot since North Carolina already changed the map back and added this could cause more controversial elections down the road. A former Navy SEAL from Montana wants to be the state's next U.S. senator. The Republican candidate is looking to unseat his state's only Democrat currently holding a statewide office. Tim Sheehy is also a businessman and a firefighting pilot. He's going up against Senator John Tester, who has served as a senator since 2007. He will enter one of the most closely watched races of the 2024 election. The outcome could determine if Republicans take back a majority in the Senate. 
Sheehy told Fox News he joined the military directly out of high school. He served in Iraq, Afghanistan, South America, and in the Pacific region. His wife is a Marine veteran. The couple has four kids. Sheehy says after he was wounded, he started several businesses. He decries the low rate of military veterans in congressional seats. A transgender state lawmaker in Delaware is running for Congress. If elected, Sarah McBride would be America's first transgender member of Congress. The Democrat has been serving as a Delaware state senator since 2020 and is now running for Delaware's at-large congressional district. The seat is currently held by Democratic Congresswoman Lisa Blount Rochester, who is seeking higher office. McBride is currently the highest-ranking elected official in the U.S. who is transgender. And following that story, bad news for the nation's first transgender state representative. Former New Hampshire lawmaker Stacey Marie Loughton has been arrested. Loughton was accused of distributing images of child sexual abuse. Born male, he went through gender reassignment procedures to resemble a woman. Loughton won races for the New Hampshire State Legislature both in 2020 and in 2022, but resigned from the State House. The recent arrest wasn't his first offense. Last November, police detained him on charges of violating a court order which banned him from posting about another person on social media. Turning to international affairs, Russian President Vladimir Putin today addressed his military after the attempted coup that took place over the weekend. Meanwhile, Russia announced it's dropping charges against the armed rebels. Here's an update on the aftermath in Russia. Russian President Vladimir Putin praised members of Russia's military and security forces in a ceremony on Tuesday. He protected the constitution, the lives, the safety, and the freedom of our people. He saved our motherland from turmoil. In fact, he stopped a civil war. He then requested a minute of silence to honor military pilots killed in the revolt. Russian authorities on Tuesday said they have closed a criminal investigation into the aborted rebellion. There will be no charges against mercenary chief Yevgeny Prigozhin or his troops. This comes just a day after Putin on Monday said he'll bring the rebels to justice. Russia's Federal Security Service said it found that those involved in the mutiny ceased activities directed at committing the crime, so the case would not be pursued. The attempted coup was stopped after Prigozhin made a deal with Russia that allowed him to exile to Belarus in return for calling off the mutiny. However, many experts have since questioned whether Putin will follow that deal, saying Prigozhin's long-term safety is not guaranteed. And early Tuesday morning, Flight Radar 24 monitored a flight which appears to show a business jet linked to Prigozhin flying from southern Russia to Belarus. However, the media team for Prigozhin didn't confirm whether he landed there. Meanwhile, Belarus's president, Alexander Lukashenko, gave a speech on Tuesday. He didn't comment on Prigozhin and whether he arrived in the country, but instead criticized NATO. Today, we can clearly see a new wave of NATO enlargement and unprecedented amassing of arms by the alliance's member states in the region, including in places close to our borders. Almost daily, our border guards document various types of provocations on the state border undertaken by neighboring countries. He said that threats are coming from the West and called on his military to resist. Coming up, some closure to an ongoing scandal. America's largest bank pays accusers of sex offender Jeffrey Epstein $290 million. The accusers say J.P. Morgan Chase knew about their abuse. Is ESG investing on its way out? The CEO of BlackRock is avoiding the term, but an analyst tells NTD we may see more agenda-based investing 
just under a new name. So get that story in just a moment here on NTD News. Welcome back. We're continuing with a major development, a $290 million settlement between America's largest bank and accusers of Jeffrey Epstein was given preliminary approval by a judge on Monday. The accusers are women who say Epstein abused them and that J.P. Morgan Chase turned a blind eye to the late financier's sex trafficking. Here's more. U.S. District Judge Jed Rekoff said that, quote, this is a really fine settlement. Rekoff approved another similar $75 million settlement over Epstein with Deutsche Bank earlier this month. He said these are large compensations for Epstein's victims, though they would not make up for the abuses they suffered. The class action lawsuit against J.P. Morgan accused the bank of ignoring red flags of the disgraced financier's abuses and staying in touch with him long after he officially left as a client. Epstein was a J.P. Morgan client from 1998 to 2013. The bank kept him on even after he pled guilty to a prostitution-related charge in 2008 and was registered as a sex offender. Meanwhile, J.P. Morgan faces another lawsuit over Epstein by the U.S. Virgin Islands, where Epstein owned two islands and allegedly abused victims in his mansion. Epstein died in a Manhattan jail cell in 2019 while awaiting trial for sex trafficking. A report out today says Jeffrey Epstein was able to kill himself in jail due to careless but not criminal behavior. That determination is from the Justice Department's Office of the Inspector General. It says multiple employees failed to conduct rounds when Epstein was at the New York City's Metropolitan Correctional Center in 2019. The report says Epstein should have been roomed with a fellow inmate since he was on suicide watch and he shouldn't have had extra linens. The medical examiner says he used them to hang himself. ESG is back in the spotlight or out of the spotlight. BlackRock CEO Larry Fink said he's done using the term ESG as backlash mounts. ESG is an investment strategy that takes environmental, social, and governance issues into consideration when deciding which companies to invest in. Some say the practice can help portfolios keep from holding companies that are actually unethical. But others say it slashes the bottom line in favor of promoting a progressive political agenda. Let's get some insight into this from an investigator who shined a light on this questionable approach to investing. Please welcome Kevin Stockland, financial reporter for the Epic Times and host and producer of The Shadow State. Kevin, I'm really glad that you can speak to us today. Thanks for having me on. Larry Fink's open letter his open investment letter this year did not include one mention of ESG, and it's de-emphasizing climate goals, unlike in 2020. Do you think this decision to drop the term is going to make any lasting impact? Uh, you know, he recently had uh, an interview where he talked about uh, being ashamed of supporting ESG, and but it's not clear at all whether he meant he was ashamed for supporting it or ashamed that it was politicized or what he meant, but he said he's no longer going to use the term. It's become too politicized. Um, the question that a lot of people have, I've spoken with some state financial officers about this, is whether this is actually a, a sincere change of heart or whether this is simply just a rebranding of the ESG movement because people have learned about it and they don't like what it means. Rebranding, can you explain this, maybe how it relates to other things like critical race theory and things like that? Well, it's really become a lightning rod for a lot of criticism. You know, we saw this, for example, with critical race theory. 
um, that once people figured out what that was all about, that became very unpopular. And then they had to rebrand that as social emotional learning or whatever new terms they had. So the question is, um, you know, now that people have figured out what ESG is and how it may be uh, causing, you know, a diminished return on pension funds, um, are they actually going to change their tactics or are they simply going to rebrand it as, as something else and, and behave the very same way? And more on this rebranding, would there be any possibility that the company would be able to advance its ESG goals even if it was rebranded? I mean, there's been a lot of Republican pushback. Don't you think they would be onto this? Well, you know, the folks that I've spoken with have said they, they want to see um, concrete action. So, for example, um, Vanguard, which is the second largest asset manager in the world after BlackRock, has pulled out of the Net Zero Asset Managers Alliance. The CEO came out and said they have no evidence that ESG investing has any positive benefit for investors and shareholders. So the question that a lot of these state officials are posing for BlackRock is, let's see your voting record. Let's see how you're voting your shares. And let's see what behavior you're engaged in more than whether or not ESG is, is, is an agenda that you, you know, or a term that you're going to follow. Actions definitely speak louder than words, and especially in this case. And I want to point out that BlackRock has not just been criticized for ESG, but it's also taken a big hit financially for advancing it. For example, Florida's chief financial officer announced that it would divest $2 billion from the company last year. What can you say about investment firms' fiduciary responsibilities surrounding ESG, especially in this era of high inflation and high interest rates? This is a potentially a very large risk for these asset managers. So they have uh, spun ESG not as a political ideology, but as just prudent asset management and asset management. They say this is good risk management for investors. The problem is they've never been able to produce any evidence that this is the case. And in fact, there have been studies from Harvard and Columbia University, London School of Economics, et cetera, that all show that ESG actually diminishes investment returns. So to the extent that asset managers are actually engaging in politicized behavior that's hurting the returns of their shareholders, they may be open to some lawsuits. And we did just see uh, some, some pensioners in New York, a teacher and a subway operator, sue their state pension fund because they say that this ESG movement is, is wasting their retirement money. So this is the risk that asset managers are running, that uh, if they are shown to be uh, abusing or misusing the, the trust and, and their fiduciary responsibility to their investors, um, they could be open to lawsuits as a result of that. Kevin Stockland, financial reporter at the Epic Times. It's always great to hear from you. Thanks for having me on the show. Still to come, the Biden administration pledges to spend $42 billion to make Internet access universal by 2030. How much money could it save you? Google parent Alphabet brings the Internet to remote regions worldwide using beams of light. The lasers can transmit data as far as 12 miles apart. So we'll have those details for you soon when we return. Good to have you back. Major American banks are facing the Federal Reserve's annual stress test this week. It will judge whether they have enough capital in a potential crisis to make the grade. Despite the bank crisis this year, lenders are believed to have enough capital to weather a severe economic downturn, but investor payouts are expected to dip slightly. Major Wall Street institutions like Citigroup, Bank of America, and J.P. Morgan Chase are all in the spotlight, and smaller lenders are also receiving attention from worried investors. The Fed established the tests following the 2007 to 2009 financial crisis. 
It was a way to see if banks could withstand a similar shock in the future. This year's tests come after four U.S. regional lenders failed in the first quarter of 2023, along with the forced acquisition of Credit Suisse by UBS. The Fed will release the results on June 28th. The Transportation Department is giving 46 states and territories $1.7 billion in grant money for electric and low-emission buses. The money comes from the 2021 Infrastructure Bill passed by Congress. The grants will cover the cost of 1,700 U.S.-built buses. The $1.7 billion covers the second round of funding for buses and their supporting infrastructure under the bill. The first round covered $3.3 billion worth of bus projects. Government officials expect to award around $5 billion more over the next three years. The Biden administration said that the buses would improve public health by cutting down on diesel exhaust. The administration said the new buses will also be easier to maintain. Washington, D.C. received the largest grant award. $104 million will go towards converting a bus garage into a fully battery electric bus facility and buying a number of buses. President Biden announced yesterday that $42 billion is going out across the country to deliver high-speed Internet. This Could this promote economic growth and keep recession fears at bay? NTD Business's Don Ma speaks with an economic analyst. And with me now is Mark Hamrick, senior economic analyst at Bankrate.com. So Biden announced a plan to spend uh, about $40 billion on nationwide high-speed Internet. He he says it could help families, 19 million of them, save around $30 a month on their Internet bills. Um, So, you know, We've we've been talking about having a recession, but it hasn't it hasn't appeared. Uh, some some are saying it's it's the amount of liquidity that's holding up the economy. Now, with with this new bill, this new spending around thirty dollars, wouldn't that make it um, even harder for the economy to um, experience a recession and, and and counter to what the Fed wants? Good to be with you, Don, and thanks for having me. I think we can look at these two issues, essentially, in separate contexts. And what I mean by that is we're really talking about the deployment of $40 billion over a long period of time here. And economic cycles uh, these days, uh, let's say over the last 10 or 20 years, particularly the last five years, have been much more compressed in the sense of time. And so, yes, This will uh, give a lift uh, to the economy in the long term. And so I think what the president and the supporters of this effort are looking to do is essentially accelerate deployment of high-speed Internet in a way that uh, would have taken much more time if it had been done, if at all, by the private sector. I do think that in the uh, intermediate or longer term, this will help people. They need to be participants in the digital economy. They need to have access to the resources that uh, broadband will provide. And we're seeing that play out. Yeah, I mean, saving $30 uh, more or less for families uh, every month, I, I mean, that's a good thing, right? But with economics, there's always pros and cons. Um, would this be inflationary? Yeah, I don't think so. I, I, I think that maybe broadly looked at, uh, you know, the totality of all the fiscal stimulus measures that were put into place during and, let's say, after the pandemic, and some of that spending is still obviously going on with highway building around the country. You can see it in many locations. That is uh, certainly supportive of economic activity. But I don't think the broadband measure in and of itself is inflationary. But for those communities which have been marginalized 
in the sense over many years because they didn't have access to this technology. Uh, this will help presumably to lift them a bit. Uh, and, you know, we have a huge problem in our country with uh, uh, the economic divide, wealth inequality, income inequality, and many of those rural communities are on the lower end of uh, that battle. And so, essentially, this is the Biden administration's way, along with the Democratic supporters of the administration and this legislation, to try to help those who have not been participants in the economic expansion of many years. Now, of course, uh I'm not saying the government shouldn't allocate some money to spend on infrastructure, internet, et cetera. Um, but what do you think about the national debt being 120, over 120 percent to GDP? It's a horrible problem, Don. And uh, unfortunately, it doesn't really seem to rise to uh, a sufficiently important level uh, of uh, debate in the nation's capital or far beyond it. The presidential election cycle in the U.S. is going to be heating up, uh, let's say, over the next six months. Be very interesting to see whether these fiscal and uh, uh, related issues see the would-be light of day in the sense of the national conversation. All right. Thank you very much today, Mark. Pleasure speaking to you. Thank you, Don. Internet on a beam of light. Google parent Alphabet is trying to bring internet access to remote areas using lasers. NCD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Project Tara is using lasers to connect remote areas to the internet. The project began in 2016 after stratospheric internet balloons were found to be too expensive. Mahesh Krishnaswamy is the general manager of the project at Alphabet's Innovation Lab X. Even though there is now some amount of infrastructure like electricity and water, these places are still left behind in terms of connectivity. And the closest fiber point of presence is probably five, six kilometers from there, but yet these villages don't have access to proper internet access. Tara's machines are each about the size of a traffic light. The device sends laser beams carrying data, essentially fiber optic internet without the cables. Each terminal is equipped with mirrors and chips that transmit a laser beam to a corresponding terminal. So the way this technology works is we have a simple two-stage compensation mechanism. One is a coarse pointing mirror, we call it as a, uh, a CPM, and then the second one is a fast steering mirror. The combination of these two things allows us to center the beam and keep them in lockstep at any given point. These terminals transmit beams of light as far apart as 12 miles. They can send 20 gigabytes of data per second in both directions. At each end, the data can be distributed to communities via Wi-Fi routers or fiber. This is a, a simple, as simple as a, a digital camera with a laser pointer. So you're using the laser pointer to kind of like transmit the electricity, the, 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 the data from one end to the other end. And on the other end, think of the same digital camera which is receiving that same laser beams and is able to decode it and then convert it into bytes. Krishna Swami was recently in Asur, India, for the installation of Tara equipment. And I'm really excited to see uh, you know, villages like these, and there's hundreds of thousands of these villages across India. I can't wait to see how this technology can come handy to, to bringing all of those people online. Krishnaswamy says the village will receive high-speed internet for the first time this summer. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. On our continuing coverage, the military of Honduras takes over the country's prisons. That's after a prison riot resulted in 46 deaths at a women's detention center. 
vehicle smuggling into Bolivia is surging. Shortly, you'll find out why a Chilean man found his car at a Bolivian government event and how Bolivia is trying to stop the contraband, so we'll see you soon. Good to have you back with us. We're continuing with some mitigation measures down in Central America. Honduras's military began taking control of the country's violent prisons on Monday, according to officials. The move comes after a gang dispute left 46 inmates dead at a women's detention center last week. The high-security Tamara prison shown here is one of two that military police now control. Colonel Fernando Munoz told reporters that the weapons and ammo shown here were seized from only one area in the prison controlled by the Barrio 18 gang and accounted for only 5% of total inspections. Although the official capacity of the prison is 2,500, more than 4,200 people are crammed into this facility. A United Nations report said that the country's 26 prisons are around 34% over capacity. Some on the streets of the capital told reporters the military control doesn't go far enough to stop the violence. I think that the new measures have to be put in place. First of all, the prisons have to be restructured. New jails have to be built. Also, to train and educate the staff working in the prisons and a new army, because the police and the army are complicit in this violence. The takeover is part of a push by leftist President Xiomara Castro to eliminate organized crime inside prisons and a departure from her previous stance of demilitarization. The images resemble those from El Salvador earlier this year, where the government has beefed up prison security and locked up more than 62,000 alleged criminals in a crackdown on gangs. More news from Latin America. An incredible rise in vehicle smuggling into Bolivia in recent years shows no signs of slowing down. According to the Bolivian government, some 6,000 stolen cars arrived from Chile in 2022. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on the contraband. Christopher Montesinos' Kia was stolen from the streets of Antofagasta, Chile in 2019. Four years later, it turned up in an unexpected place, the garage of Bolivia's National Assembly. I'm a little shocked and at the same time happy because I will take the car and I will be able to recover an asset that was mine. More than a material good, it is a sentimental good. The vehicle had been seized by Bolivian police and donated to Congress in May. After several negotiations with Bolivian officials, Montesinos got his vehicle back this week. Many chutos, or contraband cars, are donated to public offices, social movements, and even national authorities after being seized. That's exactly what happened with Montesinos' vehicle. We have seen that the stolen cars are not only being traded by private individuals, but also that the state is part of this network of stolen vehicles that have been stolen in neighboring countries. This is happening because there is a total lack of control on the border with Bolivia. A study by the Bolivian National Chamber of Industry reports that smuggling reached some $3.3 million in 2022 a 65% increase from 2014. Cigarettes, alcohol, vehicles, and agricultural products are smuggled into Bolivia, mainly from Peru and Chile. Many control measures have been implemented, mainly on the border with Peru. We have increased the number of troops and taken control actions. 
This week, we destroyed an illegal platform that connected the Desaguadero River with Peru. The Bolivian government has deployed soldiers on its borders, but smugglers still manage to get their merchandise through. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Former Audi boss Rupert Stadler has been convicted for the diesel emission scandal. He was handed a suspended sentence of one year and nine months by a German court and fined $1.2 million. Stadler is the first former Volkswagen board member to receive such a sentence. In 2015, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency found that Volkswagen was selling cars with cheating devices to manipulate emissions levels. The German auto giant admitted to having installed the software in millions of diesel vehicles. Stadler pleaded guilty last month to allowing continued sales of cars with the rigged software even after the scandal was made public. Still to come, a New Zealand company showcases its latest water e-bike for the first time. Riders can expect up to four hours of cycling above the water. They say it's like flying. In Croatia, tourism officials prepare for a record year. Based on results in the pre-summer season, officials expect the trend to continue this year. So stay tuned for more on that when we return. A New Zealand company is looking to outshine jet skis with water e-bikes, but it's expensive and a little difficult to transport. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on the new aqua bicycle at an event in France. Cyclists on the water are not a common sight, but New Zealand-based company Manta 5 could change that. It's showcasing its latest water e-bike for the first time. We have been told by others that this could be an alternative to what we typically see in uh, jet ski-like products. So the key points of difference is that our bike has no emissions, no wake, you don't need a trailer, it's super, super easy to ride. The Manta 5 SL3 is the company's second generation water e-bike. Riders can expect up to four hours of cycling above the water, but riding it comes with a cost. For the 10,000 euro price tag, it's not dissimilar to that of a high-end e-bike that um, you would get for the road. However, this bike too is it's customizable in that you can adjust it for different size riders. So you could buy one bike for the, for the whole family from dad to, you know, 16-year-old son and daughter. The e-bike demonstrations took place on the sidelines of VivaTech, France's biggest tech fair. Tech journalist Jérôme Colombain says this type of product could have a future. Yes, tech can help us to discover, to be more in tune with nature. I've got an electric bike that's hyper-tech, that's connected, that's got a GPS. And it's a real pleasure to be out in the open air on a thing like that. The SL3 features what Manta 5 calls easy launch technology. The company says riders can learn how to launch in around 40 minutes instead of three hours. I had the assistance of, um, I guess, a person that actually demonstrated it. And, and I guess in a matter of 10 minutes, once you understood what you have to do, you can actually start gain, getting out of the water and you instantly fly, basically. The SL3 can be disassembled into five pieces. The company says the e-bike fits in SUVs or other vehicles with the seats down. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Croatian officials are anticipating a record year for tourism. The country joined the European Union's Schengen Free Movement Zone in January. Here's the details on the tourist season. 
the number of visitors to Croatia's picturesque Adriatic coast has surged. Tourism accounts for 20% of Croatia's economy. Following the pandemic slump, the sector recovered in 2022. Based on results in the pre-summer season, officials expect the trend to continue this year. Compared to last year, we achieved a record income from tourism of over 13 billion euros. This income was the basis for the continuation of tourist trends. I would say financial flows this year as well. And it is expected that this year it will also be a record year in the financial sense. The director said overnight stays were up 11% compared to 2019, which was a record year for visitors. So far, we have recorded nearly 5 million arrivals and over 17.5 million overnight stays, which is a 20% rise from the last year. Even compared to the record year of 2019, we are now seeing excellent indicators, namely in overnight stays. The industry raked in a record revenue of over $14 billion in 2022. This year could bring in even more, now that the country is part of the visa-free European zone called Schengen. In the first five months of 2023, tourist traffic was actually more intense on the weekends, and this is certainly a direct consequence of Croatia's entry into Schengen. We have never been closer to our emission markets such as Slovenia, Italy, Hungary, Austria and Bavaria, from where the largest number of visitors have arrived in the pre-season period. Locals in Zadar say the historical Adriatic town is perfect for a quick visit. They add that it's also great for family vacationers. Zadar is a perfect location for day trips. We are surrounded by four national parks and several nature parks. In fact, Zadar is a perfect destination for family tourism if you want to visit nature and natural beauty. Croatia joined the Schengen area and the Eurozone on January 1st. Visitors from the bloc can travel faster and make payments more easily. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Check this out. It's getting easier ordering food from home. Food delivery usually requires an address, but not for Domino's. The pizza chain is launching an anywhere delivery service, letting customers choose a location by dropping a pin on the map. Domino's says the service is starting this summer, when people might be at the beach or at a park without an exact address. It works just like other delivery service. Customers can get updates and track their order. And once the driver is at the location, they use a visual sign on their phone to help find the customer. The fight for the Taco Tuesday trademark is getting spicy. Believe it or not, that phrase is actually trademarked. And it's been owned by regional chain Taco John's for 34 years. The company responded to a petition to, to a petition Taco Bell filled with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office to cancel the trademark. Taco Bell claims the phrase Taco Tuesday is so common anyone should be able to use it to, quote, make, sell, eat, and celebrate tacos. Taco John's parent company, Spicy Seasonings, filed its response to Taco Bell's petition Friday, saying it has the right to enforce its trademark. And just ahead, what did the ancestor of pizza look like? The answer may lie in a painting found in the ancient ruins of Pompeii. We'll have those details for you right here on NTD News Today. Good to have you back with us. You're just in time for a recall alert. You may want to check your freezer for frozen organic pineapple. Scenic Fruit Company says its organic tropical fruit blend with pineapple has the potential to be contaminated with listeria. The recall is being initiated due to a similar problem with Sunrise Growers' frozen fruit products. 
The organic tropical fruit smoothie blend was sold at Trader Joe's nationwide. It was also sent to health food stores in California, Illinois, Indiana, Florida, Maryland, Oregon, and Texas. The bacteria can cause serious and sometimes even fatal infections in young children, elderly people, and those with weakened immune systems. The FDA advises if you have this product, throw it away or return it to the store for a full refund. A team of researchers has discovered an ancient Mayan city in a dense southeastern jungle in Mexico. The Institute of Anthropology and History of Mexico says the site contains a number of cylindrical rock posts. Researchers therefore dubbed this ancient city with a Mayan word meaning stone column. The expedition's archaeologists explained that the monument covers more than 123 acres. According to the expert, it was an important center during the classical period, but suffered alterations over the years. A new discovery at the ancient ruins of Pompeii. A fresco there may give a hint as to the ancestry of the traditional Italian food, pizza. The mural was found in the atrium of a house with a bakery attached. As depicted in the painting, next to a wine glass, a flatbread serves as a holder for various spiced fruits and sauce. This kind of image was inspired by the welcome gifts offered to guests. Despite the similarities, experts say the food in the picture isn't real pizza. That's because two essential ingredients, tomatoes and mozzarella cheese, weren't known in Italy 2,000 years ago when Pompeii was wiped out by a volcanic eruption. It's an image that obviously to the modern observer immediately brings to mind a pizza since we are near Naples. Obviously it is not a pizza, but perhaps it could have been a distant ancestor of this food. The ancient city of Pompeii is adjacent to Naples, the home of pizza. The Pompeii site wasn't discovered until the 16th century. It has recently seen a burst of archaeological activity aimed at stopping years of decay and neglect. Also in Italy, authorities are hunting for a tourist who defaced the walls of the landmark Colosseum. That was after this video was posted online. A tourist was filmed scratching his and his girlfriend's names with a key on the Colosseum's inner wall. He appeared smiling, even as the author of the video reprimanded him. Italy's culture minister vowed to punish the tourist, calling his move very serious and uncivilized. If found, the man could face a minimum fine of more than $16,000 and up to five years in prison. Rome's famed Colosseum has suffered repeated vandalism with dozens of tourists caught in recent years. Turning to a key discovery in space, NASA says astronomers have detected a crucial carbon molecule for the first time using the James Webb Space Telescope. The compound is called methyl cation, or CH3+. It was discovered in a star system about 1,350 light years away from Earth in the Orion Nebula. Scientists say carbon compounds are important because they act as the foundation for life as we know it. The new discovery could someday help researchers determine if life exists elsewhere in the universe. We often reach for painkillers to deal with headaches. However, there are better options. Here are five natural remedies that you most likely have in your fridge or cupboard from Entity's Jean Marie.
The role of dietary factors in headaches has been the subject of various related studies. Whether it's a low-grade tension headache or a migraine, either way, they aren't a lot of fun. They have many causes, including stress, changes in sleep patterns, insomnia, travel, interrupted routines, colds, and seasonal illnesses. Some headaches, such as migraines, can even be hereditary. Headaches can also be triggered by certain foods. However, some foods may help to relieve and reduce the occurrence of headaches. Let's start by looking at number one, peppermint. A study was published in the International Journal of Preventative Medicine in 2019. It found that over 70% of patients experienced headache relief after using nasal drops containing peppermint oil. It was so effective that nearly half the participants said their headaches subsided within five minutes of using the drops. Number two on the list, ginger. Ginger has been used in traditional Chinese medicine for 2,000 years. It's also a common medicinal ingredient in Indian and Arabic medicine. A study by the International Headache Society was published by Sage Journals in 2018. It found that adding ginger extract to routine treatment of acute migraines significantly reduced pain. It was also more effective than conventional therapy alone. Number three, consider pumpkin seeds and magnesium-rich foods. Multiple journals show relationships between magnesium deficiency and mild to moderate tension headaches and migraines. Double-blind, random placebo-controlled trials found that magnesium can relieve headaches. The trials also found that in many countries, medical guidelines recommend oral magnesium when treating headaches. In addition to pumpkin seeds, leafy green vegetables are also rich in magnesium, particularly spinach. Number four on the list is yogurt. Plain yogurt contains high levels of riboflavin. This can reduce the number of migraine attacks in patients. Riboflavin or vitamin B12 is an essential nutrient. In a randomized, controlled trial over a three-month period, participants took 400 milligrams of riboflavin, 600 milligrams of magnesium, 150 milligrams of coenzyme Q10, and multivitamins. It improved their migraine symptoms. And finally, number five on the list, everyone's favorite, coffee. Caffeine is considered to be a valuable and safe supplement for the relief of headaches. A study was published in the Journal of Headache and Pain in 2012. It found that a mix of 1,000 milligrams of paracetamol and 130 milligrams of caffeine was as effective and as safe. It was effective and as safe as taking 50 milligrams of oral sumatriptan when treating headaches. However, overusing caffeine may lead to chronic migraine. So to recap, if you want to deal with headaches, consider peppermint, ginger, pumpkin seeds, magnesium-rich foods, plain yogurt, and coffee. That's all for today's program. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News.